electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. First Republic becoming the third bank to fail since March. But will it really be the last? Charlie Munger warning the banks are full of bad commercial property loans. Moody says the economic fallout from the turmoil is just beginning. So would the Fed raising rates again this week be the wrong move at the wrong time? We'll debate the fallout. Plus, REITs have been especially hard hit amid rising rates and worsening fundamentals. Three of them are on deck to report, and they run the gamut from office space to shopping centers. We've got key things to watch and where to find value in earnings exchange. And the fintech lender SoFi hoped to benefit from a deposit flight out of weaker banks. Then deposits did grow in the first quarter. SoFi just beat on revenue, earnings, and guidance. But shares made a U-turn mid-morning and are now down 9%. A classic sell the news, or is there more to it? SoFi CEO Anthony Noto joins us live ahead. First, the markets, though. Scott just mentioned we're near, do we call these session highs? They're just about there, Kelly. So uh, I'm going to tell you right now, for the S&P 500, which is the broader measure, right, we're talking about 17 points to the upside. That was the high of the session so far. So again, tilting towards zero. We were actually down about three points or so at the lows of the session. So if you look at it on balance, it is generally positive, up about one-third of 1%. The Dow Industrial is up 120 points as a similar percentage move, about one-third of 1%. 34,218, 4183 for the S&P 500 level. And the NASDAQ Composite Index the laggard, if you want to call it that, up about one quarter of 1%, 27 points, 12,253, the last trade there. One of the bright spots in that technology trade today has been on Semiconductor. Now, this is a computer chip company that does a lot of work with automotive and industrial applications. Uh, many people use it as a way to take a view on autonomous driving, electric vehicles, that sort of thing. On Semi's up 7.5% right now towards the best levels of the day right now because it comes out with earnings and revenues that both beat expectations. Also, the outlook a little bit rosier than some analysts had thought. And by the way, the reason why is because for the first time in its history, automotive chips make up about 50% of total revenue. So you can kind of see that tilt in business there on semi, one of those stocks to watch. And then one last thing to point out, Kelly mentioned how important the banks are. I'm not going to show you First Republic because truth be told, the shares haven't traded since the pre-market and they're really trading on a technical basis right now. There's no real value left to them. Obviously, they've been seized by the FDIC and everybody else. But J.P. Morgan Chase is up two and three quarters percent. They're the ones taking him over the positivity there. PNC Financial Citizens, a spattering of some of those regional banks that are not as closely tied to the likelihood of what's going to happen with First Republic. But still, they're down about five percent. PacWest Bank Corp and even the Spider Regional Bank ETF ticker KRE Kelly is down two percent. So watch this sentiment, whether or not it shifts a little bit, even though, as Jamie Dimon points out, the worst may be over for some of these guys. Back over to you. Thank you very much, Don. We appreciate it. Let's drill down now on the failure of First Republic. There are several big unanswered questions about J.P. Morgan's rescue deal for the bank, like what is the rate on J.P. Morgan's five-year loan from the FDIC? Where is the FDIC getting the money from? Will this tie up capital that could prevent the FDIC from using its funds in future bank rescues? And why are markets overall reacting so blithely to the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history? Let's bring in Mark Calabria, senior advisor at the Cato Institute 
and former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. He joins us here today along with Tim Coffey, associate director of depository research at Janney Montgomery Scott, and of course, CNBC's very own Leslie Picker and Steve Leisman, who are both on set with me now. Guys, let me just turn to you for some kind of broad brush um, chit-chat about this situation. Steve, I'll turn to you first. As the day goes on, is this leaving a better or worse taste in everybody's mouth, do you think? Well, to the extent that it doesn't seem like there's a systemic risk trade going on, um, I'm going to leave the story to Leslie. And that's where it <laughs> you goes. Right? Be involved. She does the story. If it, if it creates a, a meltdown, I kind of get involved, right? <laughs> so she can control the situation. And I'm not really joking here because it isn't really funny. No, sure. Um, and I think that really is the question that we have to ask ourselves as we head towards a Fed meeting this week where the Fed's going to hike by a quarter point. There's this idea that the Fed could do monetary policy with this hand and supervision with the other hand. When you read the report on Friday, it wasn't clear to me they can do both. However, they didn't seem to have a right hand or whichever one the supervisor. Whichever one. Yeah, certainly not at the leadership level. We haven't talked a lot about that. But here's the thing. You read the report. They get told about the problems at the banks. It's unclear what's happening at the leadership level after those issues come through. We could probably talk about this for a long time. But here's the thing. We've had three bank failures. We've had to create a special fund to liquefy the banks to allow them to uh, uh, finance their, their maturities. Is that success from the Fed's point of view? Or what we, are we learning that maybe the Fed should have put monetary policy more in concert with supervisory policy? Let me quickly, other? Mark, turn to you before we kind of drill down more deeply on this. Big picture talking. Are you surprised at kind of the, the, the shrug, we'll call it, uh, to this bank collapse? I mean, it's interesting how, OK, March, we, we sort of go, OK, the pro, you know, these bank failures come up. Oh, but it's not really related to monetary policy. They got to keep tightening. Here we are. Now we've had the, the, another huge one. Oh, well, it's not really related to monetary policy. They got to keep tightening. I don't know. Does any of this make sense to you? <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it, it does. I, I understand the shrug and that I thought the way this transaction was handled was much cleaner much smoother. The way I kind of think about it is, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is this was a clean transaction, little disruption to customers. Uh, the bad, of course, is the $13 billion. This is a deep hole, especially given that there's only about $100 billion in the deposit insurance fund. The questions you raise, I mean, I'd like to know what kind of deal J.P. Morgan got. It looks like a really good deal. And then lastly, the ugly to me is I think we're going to have four or five more regional banks before this is over uh, take a hit. So uh, I think there's more to come. That's concerning. I don't see those banks, however, being a systemic risk. I think that can be handled but it's, there's going to be another hit to the deposit insurance fund before this is all over with. Leslie? Yeah, just to speak to kind of this whole monetary policy aspect in all of this, um, you know, Jamie Dimon was asked on the call today about his views on, you know, whether we do see a credit crunch from this, whether we do see a further liquidity crisis, additional bank failures and the like. And he's pointed to the regional bank earnings that we saw last week and said those suggest, you know, there were some mod- modest deposit outflows. Uh, but he blames those largely on QT mm. as opposed to a bona fide bank run, which well, I thought was started before March 9th. No question. Yeah, exactly. And so he says and he's been he's been harping on the Q, QT thing for quite a while. But that was should he be focus. listened to? I mean, if the most influential, most significant banker in the country, Steve, <coughs> is saying the quantitative tightening is kind of a problem here. Should he be heard? Yes, definitely. Um, and the question is, I still have this question that I started off with. I don't know that the Fed can go about its merry business of solving the inflation problem by doing what it's doing and have happening to the banks what's happening. Because 
it may be that this doesn't be a systemic risk issue, but you can be darn sure it's going to be an economic issue. You can be sure that there's going to be further tightening of credit standards and it's going to happen. But I have to ask Leslie, do we know what the loan was? The rate. Who oh, got the loan? So, what yeah. was the rate? He was, he was asked this on the analyst call. Yeah. They declined to give specifics for the rate, <laughs> just saying that it was market value. For, for the so record, I, I sent a note to the FDIC. I don't know, like three in the morning or something like that. When this thing came out, I said, where's the money coming from? But it's an important And they have question. not responded, folks. You have not responded, FDIC. Hello? Mark, <laughs> um, Tim, do you have any theories? Tim, let me turn to you. Oh, uh, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, it's coming from a fund that the banks pay into to cover the deposit insurance for, for their members, just in case some of these scenarios could occur from. But I'm not sure where the money's coming from in this instance. And Tim, how would you categorize what's happening with deposits across the country, broadly speaking, now? Well, they're, they're reacting to, one, higher rates, right? Um, as banks are typically slow to do in a tightening cycle, they don't raise rates or deposit costs until the tail end of the cycle, and that's happening right now. At the same time, the Federal Reserve is also shrinking the money supply, and so that's causing some movement around in deposits. This situation right here is a, a bit unique because we've had, uh, we had a run on the bank in Silicon Valley Bank, and we had you know the spillover effects onto First Republic. So what should normally take months for deposits to move and reprice is actually happening in a matter of weeks. And I think that's kind of creating some of the anxiety that we're seeing in the regional bank space. Do you, Tim, have the same concern that Mark does about the potential for more bank failures? Because I have to, to say, from the bank experts I talk to, there is such a wide range of opinion. There's people who are very, it's, and it's almost like the more specialist people are, the less concerned they are. <laughs> the people standing back and looking at the whole <laughs> landscape are going, this is crazy, more bad stuff's going to happen. And all the banking experts are going, no, this all seems fine to us. And if anything, the banks are a buyer. Well, so you know, let's step back here for a minute, right? What happened at Silicon Valley Bank was a tech, was a traditional run on the bank, right? It happened in unique and modern ways, but still a textbook run on the bank. Same thing at First Republic. Now, what these two companies have in common is that they both grew very quickly during a low interest rate environment, near zero, right? I, I'd love to tell you that they were the only two doing it. And of course, I'm excluding Silvergate, I'm excluding Signature out of this conversation because their problems were kind of their own. But there were other banks that grew quickly in a zero interest rate environment, but the vast, vast majority of the regional and the small banks in this country were not trying to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. Mark, do you want to respond to that and talk about why you're sort of more on the concern side, seeing the potential for more failures? I would say that I think there's actually, you know, a fair amount of agreement. And, you know, to the, those who would say banks are a good buy, I would say some are a good buy, some are not. And so there's a small segment that I think that there's real problems in. But I would agree with the point I think Tim is making that broadly the sector is overall going to make it through, which is why I don't think this is systemic. But there's definitely six to 12 that are real problems, that half of them are not going to make it through this cycle. It's even important to remember, you know, by the time Lehman failed back in 2008, we'd already lost two million jobs. Mm -hmm. We've seen no real job loss yet. And so a lot of this will depend on, do we go into a recession? Do we start to see job loss? Most of this has been interest rate mark to market loss. We haven't seen real credit losses, which I think are going to show up in commercial real estate. So I would say, while I think the overall sector is going to make it through, and I don't think this is a systemic issue, 
it's really a handful you got to keep an eye on. And by the way, uh, Steve, we now know that the Fed itself was told this, that there was an 11 page presentation given by staffers mm. to the board, which they have posted for the public to review to their credit. Yes. Where in this, it literally lays out piece by piece and, and calls out 31 banks in particular that had negative tangible equity at the end of the third quarter. So the bank, they, and we all now know this, the bank they chose to highlight as the most at risk was Silicon Valley Bank. Now, presumably, if they made this presentation to the board, then Powell and what is it, the five other members, I don't think Brainerd, I don't know if Brainerd was there at the time, they all heard this presentation. So the question to him on Wednesday, don't you think, has to be, if you literally were told that this is probably coming, why was there no plan? What did you do? Right. What did you do as did a result? Did you call your supervisors up and tell them to sharpen your pencils when it comes to interest rate risk management? Right. Apparently, according to that report, they were going to have a cross-sectional, sorry, horizontal review in the first quarter. Um, I, by the way, asked a senior Fed official about this question, about whether or not the uh, report looked at Fed leadership, and it did not, apparently. Mm. And I asked um, why no action was taken. I was told it was an information presentation, not an action presentation. Mid-February. When I told my wife that, she said to me, well, when I tell you the garbage is full, is that an informational presentation (laughs) or is that an action presentation? I do want to get to one one important question here, which is this. Um, uh, Where's the money going? To the extent that we have or do not have an uninsured deposit problem in the banks, I think it's going into things like money markets. Mm -hmm. And to me, money markets, especially government money markets, are an economic dead end when it comes to lending. So I think part of the fallout here, if Mark doesn't get his four (laughs) or five failures... And I'm pointing over here. You can see that I'm pointing at the, at the screen. I don't know if we have that on television here. Touché. They have that. There we go. See, I'm pointing to Mark. But anyway, the point is that if he doesn't get them, it's because the money went out. That's good. But where did it go? Did it go to a place where it can help the economy have a multiplier effect or not? Mark, I'll give you the last word and then Tim and then we got to go. I'll just say I fully agree with, with Steve on that. These are going to places that are going to be less productive in terms of investment, either money market funds or, or directly into treasuries. Uh, and I'll lastly say I expect another trillion in deposits to leave the system over the mm. next 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by what's, the way, fall, Barclays, what's the fallout of that? I mean, right. Leslie, you're going to have more banks to, to more, 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 more consolidation more Sundays, potentially more Sundays. But I'm, I mean, I, was I mean, a trillion doesn't leave without it being problematic, right? <laughs> yeah. Tim? I think it will flow out you know, for a period of time, but eventually it's going to come back because banks are going to start focusing more on, on interest spread. And that's the difference between what they charge on the loans and what they charge on deposits. And if it comes from a single relationship, that spreads more profitable for the bank. See, but entropy is the possibility once you're in motion to stay in motion. Once you're not in motion, you're not in motion. Once I've moved my money, once I've made that decision, which they used to say, right, you get divorced before you move your money. Once I'm moving my money, I'm moving my money. Right. Isn't that an issue that you, you the banks are not going to be the place where I put my money and go to sleep and after Tim, that? Tim, in addressing that, I also want to know what you think will happen to the banking system, because the, the crazy thing about all of this is because of the high PCI PCE report on Friday, we're talking about the Fed maybe not being done this week. Right. I heard Tim Rose earlier. I mean, right. Steve, you talk, maybe they're not done. Maybe they go again in June. What would the impact on the banking system be? Well, to your question, Kelly, more of the same. 
in the near term, right? There's going to be more, more uh, disintermediation, uh, higher deposit costs, uh, you know, more attentive uh, uh, responsiveness of the banks to their own depositors, which is positive. But to Steve's question, look, if you're a productive member of this economy, where you're a business owner, you're a, say a developer, you know, eventually you're going to come back into the market because although rates are going up, they're going to stabilize at some point, and you're going to come back in and realize that you can still make a profit and doing what you're doing. All right, we'll leave it on that hopeful note. What do you think? Uh, thank you all so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Tim Coffey, Mark Calabria, our Steve Leisman, and Leslie Picker. <laughs> the two-day Fed meeting does kick off tomorrow. Tyler Matheson and I will be heading down there to cover the rate decision. Don't miss our special programming this Wednesday from Washington, D.C., May 3rd, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern. Now let's turn to SoFi, who shares a reversing course down about 9% today after the company mentioned slowing growth and warned their student loan business may not return to pre-pandemic levels. Remember, SoFi, one of the players hoping to benefit from deposit flight out of weaker banks like we were discussing. And the shares are up about 25% so far this year, while the regional bank index is down about 29%. That said, SoFi is also still down 71% from their all-time high back in Feb of 21. Joining me now, SoFi CEO Anthony Noto. Anthony, thank you so much for, uh, for your time today. I know you've got a lot of balls in the air right now. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I want to point out, by the way, too, that you were buying your shares the week after the SVB collapse. Just talk to us about that a little bit. You know, I'm focused on the long term for our company. Uh, we think we're build, building um, the company that's going to be the winner that takes most in the digital financial world. Um, we've built a very durable company that's a one-stop shop across all of your financial needs, and that's allowing us to gain huge market share. You know, we grew over 40% uh, in revenue to an eighth consecutive quarter of record revenue at $460 million and third consecutive quarter of record EBITDA. So the business is operating on all cylinders and we're able to weather the storm that's out there because of our diversification and our unique approach. Uh, and so I'm focused on the long term. And when I see opportunities of uncertainty and investor concern, I want to make sure I express my confidence by uh, putting my money where my mouth is. Do you think that there's any sort of confusion in the marketplace about the guidance that you gave today or the commentary about, you know, kind of the, the weakness that you're dealing with? No, what I'd say is we're in a very uncertain economic environment. Um, we've seen a disruption in the banking industry. That's obvious given all the news that you've been covering today, as well as what's happened over the last month. That's been layered on top of the fact that we've had record high inflation for the first time in, in several decades, in addition to the fact that there's uncertainty in the economy and, and global risk uh, in Eastern Europe. There's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. So in many cases, stocks take two or three steps forward and one step back. And uh, our performance is what we're focused on. And I can't think of a company that's on track to do over $2 billion of revenue and the type of profit improvement we're driving with 40% top line growth and just the diversification we have across so many businesses. Yeah. The only way you can drive eight consecutive quarters of record revenue is that you have different businesses that can perform in different environments and you have a management team that can allocate resources to make that happen. And, and that's what we're doing and that's what we can control. So what have the last six weeks been like since the, you know, as soon as SVB and some of the others collapsed, the immediate question was, okay, direct exposure, right? You're out there in the marketplace first saying there's no direct exposure. Then you think maybe opportunistically, okay, here's how we can manage deposits if you're an uninsured depositor, you're concerned about. I mean, you obviously saw deposit inflows. Just talk to us a little bit about being on the front lines right now of what our last guest just said is this customer realization of, of money is fungible. You can move it around. It's easier than ever. What's it been like uh, business-wise the last several weeks? 
Well, first and foremost, I want to emphasize for our viewers that we've added more than $2 billion of deposits in each quarter um, for the last three quarters. And we're well on our way to doing that again in this first quarter of the year. The disruption that happened in the marketplace gave us an opportunity to instill confidence, to build trust with our members, and to build trust with new members. The first thing we did was made sure that there was no direct impact on our business or our, our members' financial situation, given that disruption. From there, we then said, how can we be more helpful? How do we increase the value proposition? And we made the decision within days to launch a new level of FDIC insurance of up to $2 million of FDIC insurance uh, through a partnership with a third party. Um, we are a national bank. We're also able to leverage our funding and um, our loan business to give a really attractive interest rate. We raised the interest rate to 4.2% on our savings account. We also have over a 1% interest rate on checking account. So we wanted to send a strong message that SoFi is a safe and reliable um, bank that you can put your money with. And not only that, we'll give you an unmatched value proposition in high interest, the ability to spend anywhere you want, when you want, and how you want from your mobile device. So much more to ask. I guess I'll try to sneak in two quick final questions. The first one about student loans in particular. I think those payments are set to resume in, in the coming month or two. Do you expect that to be a fill-up to the business? What I'd say is we've achieved eight record quarters of revenue in a row without the student loan refinancing business being robust. We're at about one-fourth the volume that we're at in the fourth quarter of 2019, right before the pandemic. Um, if, if the student loan moratorium ends, there will be a pickup in student loan refinancing, but we're not counting on it. Um, we have a diverse business, and the thing that gates our growth is how much we invest and where we invest. Um, if that business comes back, we'll allocate uh, resources to it to capture the opportunity and meet our, meet our members' needs. If not, we can reallocate other places and continue to drive our performance. All right. Quick final question is just about the Fed, then. How much of a headwind is it to be operating a financial institution like yours into uh, an incredibly high-rate environment where the macro slowdown looks like it just could still take a couple more quarters to materialize? What, how do you remove that headwind, or do you just have to have to deal with it? Yeah, well, the reality is, is you have to have an ability to allocate resources to the businesses that benefit the most. We're seeing a significant amount of demand in debt refinancing as rates go higher, and we're offering people the opportunity to do unsecured personal loans and to smooth those payments out over a lower amount over a longer time period. And when rates come back in, they could refinance them again. But in addition to that, we're trying to be really um, nimble as it relates to the interest rate on checking and savings to help people on that side of the equation as well. Uh, the reality is, is that we have a really strong balance sheet. Um, we have significant growth in deposits at $10 billion, uh, and that gives us a lot of optionality to help our members in unique ways when they need it. All right. I know it was like 10 years ago you were at Twitter. It's still tempting to ask you about it, but you're out of time, and we'll let you go. And, Anthony, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Anthony Noto with SoFi. President Biden weighing in on the First Republic at an event for National Small Business Week, ironic. Uh, and he's reassuring Americans, by the way, that the banking system is healthy. Take a listen. I'm pleased to say that the regulators have taken action to facilitate the sale of First Republic Bank and ensure that all depositors are protected and the taxpayers are not on the hook. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound, and that includes protecting small businesses across the country who need to make payroll for workers and their small businesses. Going uh, to 
taking pains, we should say, to point out there that taxpayers will not be on the hook. That's, again, the president weighing in this morning. My next guest has been carefully watching the market's response to these bank failures and says these difficulties are putting the Fed at a crossroads of choosing sticky inflation or bigger economic problems. And he says history suggests they'll end up choosing inflation. So he owns energy, housing, even shopping mall stocks, and even some banks, too. Here with me on set is Bill Smead, chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management. What a day to have you here, Bill. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Look, you've got not histor- historical knowledge better than anybody. What do you think as you watch this play out? Opportunity to get in the bank stocks? Do you think this is an obvious kind of problematic macro event? We talked about how, I guess, inflation still remains your top concern. Well, free money created a lot of ignorance and a lot of ignorant investments. And so you're going to go through this rolling set of bear markets to punish the, the sins of the prior episode. So this particular banking episode is closely associated with the insanity that was going on in startups, mm-hmm. in highly leveraged private equity investments, things that were fed by free money. But what's interesting, in, in our opinion, people are worried about the banks. I, I'm more worried about the people who have suckled on the startup world, the, the vendors to the startup companies. Sure. No one's talking about Hey, cloud service is slowing down. Well, yeah, every time you close up the funding on these startups, they're not going to be cloud hosting. They're not going to be doing digital ads. They're, they're not going to have uh, uh, things brought to them by Amazon. And they're not going to buy Apple devices as fast as they were when people were funding them. But let me ask you something as a value investor, knowing that this is, this is somewhat cyclical. Why not buy some of those cloud businesses or look at Apple and say, OK, here's an opportunity. They're at a down point in the cycle, but I want to own it for the next 10 or 15 years. Fantastic question. I made fun of eBay in 99. Uh, 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 Somebody would go online and buy a once-used Callaway driver for half price, and they'd get so excited they'd go on their online account and buy 300 shares of eBay, and it would go up 10% the first week they owned it. And so I made fun of that. And then in 08, we ended up buying a whole bunch of eBay at $11 a share with $3 a share in cash, owned 100% of PayPal, owned 30% of Skype, owned all of StubHub, and five of the six largest classified advertising firms. And we made a ton of money on it. But that was nine years later, Kelly. That's what everyone's forgetting here. There will be bargains. But it uh, Munger called this financial euphoria episode that peaked in 2021 the biggest of his career in totality. He said, which means it was like seven different financial euphoria episodes going on simultaneously. So why aren't you more bearish? Because everybody who shares that view goes, the obvious shoe falling episode is yet to happen. The economy's going to crash. The yield curve is telling you that inflation should be the last of anybody's concerns. So I wonder why you're not more bearish about where the market's going. Great question again, because these are rich people's problems. <laughs> Venture capital is for rich people. Private equity is for rich people. Alt investing is for rich people that even if they lose the money, it's not going to change their behavior. The average person in America is seeing their wages go up a lot. But can that remain to be the case when you have the most sort of profitable parts of America in deep recession? No, because they don't have the multiplier effect. Yeah. So you know that we're big fans of the home builders Mm -hmm. and we own the home builders. When people are building houses, the carpenters and plumbers and electricians and painters and roofers, and there's such an ecosystem of multiplier effect. When Apple 
does their thing, their capital spending goes outside the country and the bartender in Palo Alto has to live in Stockton and the maids that are at the most expensive hotels in Palo Alto, they live with 11 relatives in, in, in uh, Sacramento. I hope you're right. I mean, in the sense that this is a great rebalancing and not a great recession that we're heading into. Because well, it, we, we could have a recession, but everyone got to remember that, OK, let's say the economy contracts for three percent for six months. Well, I always joke that, if, yeah, gosh, if, if your spouse loved you 3% less next year, would you divorce them? Well, people divorce their stocks because of 3% less affection from the economy. The truth of it is there's 180 million people below 40. The future's very bright. Therefore, the necessities that they're going to spend money on, that's where we've got our portfolio pointed. Home builders, oil and gas, uh, Target, totally. Home Depot. That, that, the name of the game is think like you're owning a business rather than owning a stock. I thought of you even with TriPoint this morning. That stock is, one, you know, that's one of the areas where we're taking out the, no, the 2021 highs, whatever month they hit them, and, and in some cases going to, to new highs. We, we listened to your interview. <laughs> it, was, it was Sarah, by so, the way, so but it was, we, it was we fabulous. We listened to CNBC yeah. while that was going on. And... Those companies are seeing their market share soar. There's been a downturn. The Fed tightened credit more than they've ever tightened credit. And uh, despite that, they're highly profitable and they're building market share to get in the way of those 180 million people. So have you done the work on everyone I know who's had to buy a house at what they feel are uncomfortably high prices is going, am I going to be underwater on this thing? And I said, I got to ask Bill if Gen Z is big enough that when they start buying someday and maybe it's another 10 years from now, are they going to be able to <laughs> to put everybody you know, in the black on their home prices? Yeah, well, first of all, millennials are still way behind prior groups at the same age. So there's a big ramp still, but we're seeing evidence that 24 and 25 year olds are much more interested in buying a house than the last set of 24 and 25 so, year olds. So that's a secular bull on the housing market. You're not selling here despite the run they've had? Buffett said from 1964 to 1981 at the Allen & Company thing in 99, he said the economy grew 4.3% between 1964 and 1981, and the Dow went nowhere. <laughs> and then the, the economy grew only 2.7% the following 17 years, and the market exploded because rates came down. We're in that 64 to 81 era now where, where economic growth, uh, Main Street will outperform Wall Street. But the market might go nowhere, like Stan Druckenmiller said. Ex exactly. P.E. ratios get compressed. I mean, and Amazon reported that a complete surprise to everybody that for 15 years of growing sales to $120 billion a quarter or something like that, they're not making any money from delivering stuff to your house. It's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, the fact is, that's a 50 or 60 multiple stock based on those results. Who's going to make it out of this thing with a 50 multiple? Bill Smead, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Big week. We've got Buffett this weekend. I know you're going to be very busy. Thanks for Thank making you. the time. Yeah. Bill Smead with Smead Capital Management. Coming up, what's happening in cybersecurity? That trade screeching to a halt with names like Tenable plunging 20% last week after the company cut its full year outlook. The CEO will join us to discuss the results and how the banking turmoil is impacting them. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow. Uh, JP Morgan leading the blue chips, which are up about two to one today, gainers versus decliners, while Intel is lagging once again. The exchange just back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Airstrikes continue to hit Sudan's capital of Khartoum, despite a ceasefire aimed at allowing civilians to flee the country. The fighting there between warring generals has intensified over the past several days. So far, more than 500 deaths have been reported, while millions more remain trapped in Sudan's sizable capital city. Hunter Biden arriving at an Arkansas courthouse to face contempt charges in an ongoing child support case. The president's son, Hunter, is accused of ignoring previous court records and withholding evidence in the litigation stemming from his paternity suit. This comes as federal prosecutors are considering uh, charging Hunter with three tax crimes and a related uh, charge related to a gun purchase. And Adidas shareholders are launching a class action lawsuit over the Kanye West fallout. The lawsuit alleges that Adidas uh, officials intended to deceive investors by failing to disclose ongoing issues between the company and the artist. Adidas cut ties with Yee in October after facing widespread pressure to end its partnership with the rapper in the wake of anti-Semitic comments he made. Kelly, back over to you. Tyler, thank you, and I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Coming up, Vornado headlining the REITs reporting results this week. It's down more than 60% from its recent highs. Are commercial real estate problems priced in now or not? That's ahead in Earnings Exchange. Dow's up 68. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back, everybody. It's another big week for earnings. We've got 148 S&P companies and one Dow component, Apple reporting. But today we're going to do a special REIT edition of Earnings Exchange after Charlie Munger told the Financial Times that, quote, there are a lot of troubled office buildings and shopping centers and, quote, there's a lot of agony out there. It's a big concern for any exposed banks, obviously, but also for the REITs, especially ones with big office exposure. So office retail and residential REIT Vornado is down nearly 30 percent from the year. Pure retail plays like Bricksmore and Phillips Edison are down 
down only one and six and one percent respectively. All three report this week. And while the street will be watching the impact of tightening credit and a slowing economy, let's drill down on some specifics. Listening for any updates about Vornado's dividend after they uh, after it was paused last week. Bricksmore, one of the names Mizuho says is most exposed to Bed Bath & Beyond's bankruptcy. And grocer-anchored shopping centers could help insulate Phillips Edison from any bigger slowdowns. Let's bring in Mizuho's Handel St. Just for more on the REITs. Handel, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So I know you don't cover Vornado specifically, but talking about office more broadly, is the fact that it's talked so much about make you any more comfortable about the exposures being mitigated or contained here or not? Is it simply a hard thing to hedge? Well, certainly, look, I think that there's lots of headlines around office, and clearly there's lots of banks with lots of office loans, and certainly that's going to have to play out over time. But for open-air retail, I think it's important to make the distinction here. Open-air retail is, is not office. I mean, despite concerns about a weakening macro consumer tenant credit, open-air portfolios are full. Demand is strong. At least they're getting signed at higher rates, and their balance sheets are liquid. Their dividends are well-covered. So we think the sector is a net winner in the hybrid um, work from home world here. Okay, sure. All right, let's pivot and talk a little bit more about that because it was interesting to hear Munger call out some of the retail uh, names, and I've heard more concerns after Bed Bath's bankruptcy about who could fill some of these leases. What would you say about Bricksmore and their exposures there? Absolutely. Look, I think stepping back, these tenant issues have been known for some time. Party City, Regal, Bed Bath, it's not new news. And so coming into the year, uh, Bricksmore and its peers have budgeted in their you know, uh, full-year guidance ranges for potential adverse outcomes. Uh, but what we're seeing so far is actually notable that there is strong demand for these boxes. Uh, you're getting demand from quality tenants like TJX and others. And even, even more interesting is that the rents here, the mark-to-markets are 20 to 25% higher. So good demand for the boxes. Uh, the rents are at meaningfully higher levels. So we think that despite some short-term uh, disruption, maybe some negative headlines that this is a longer-term opportunity for open-air shopping centers like Bricksmore, like Pico, especially those who are, are more defensive. And I think that matters, too, because within our retail uh, coverage, we favor names that are more defensive, have greater grocery exposure, more necessity-based tenants, stronger balance sheets. And so Bricksmore is our top pick this year, and we think Bricksmore, along with uh, Pico, are well-positioned because of their positioning with the necessity-based retail that I played out. Sure, and Bricksmore is only down 6% year-to-date despite those Bed Bath exposures. You like it. You like P- Pico or Phillips Edison, as we've been discussing. Why do you think they, and what should we be listening for, on in, looking in the earnings, listening for on the call, to be sure that their trajectory is still intact? Sure. I think leasing demand is certainly something that's going to be front and center. Uh, it's something that's not new. The, the landlords have been talking about this for the past year, year and a half. You would have thought by now you would start seeing some cracks in the, in the armor, some uh, weakness, but the demand remains strong. And more importantly, look, I think it's important to realize that these portfolios are full. Uh, the tenant credit has been upgraded post-COVID. There's a lot of weaker tenants that were purged. There's been effectively no new supply here in, in open-air retail over the past decade, and there's high tenant retention. So when you put that all together, uh, I think it creates a really good formula for landlords to continue to be able to push rent uh, and for their portfolios to continue to perform and for them to raise dividends and uh, to perform in, in line of, in terms of earnings. So we expect Bricksmore and Pico uh, to raise guidance uh, this, this week, as their peers did last week, uh, with the tailwinds that we outlined before. All right, then quickly and finally, when we look at the landscape, where are your concerns mostly centered 
Um, you know, for instance, when we talked with uh, Huntington Bank a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, in terms of exposures, we're actually a little concerned about health care, long term care, where the reimbursements rates haven't kept up with inflation. So is there anything like that pockets of weakness that you might want to mention that aren't really being talked about? I think that uh, starting first with the most obvious, obviously, the mall, malls are not open air retail, and their concerns have been publicized for some years now. And so I think that's certainly something we're, we're keeping an eye on office, as you outlined. Uh, there's a lot of supply and multifamily that's coming into the Sun Belt in the back half of the years, and a lot of uh, levered private operators who've uh, built assets here in a world where cost of capital was different, asset values were different. So I think those going to result in some disruption, uh, potential opportunistic investment. So that's something we're keeping an eye on because the Sun Belt has been on a great growth trajectory the last couple of years, but that's now stalling at the wrong time because the supply is entering the market in a big way in multifamily. So that's something to keep an eye out on. Um, not in health care experts, so I'll defer to someone else to speak to that. But again, malls, office, and then watch multifamily in the back after you in the Sun Belt. Interesting. Malls, office, keep an eye on multifamily as well. It's good to know where you're focused. Handel, thanks for your time and for joining us today. Thanks, Kelly. Handel St. Just from Mizuho. Still ahead, one tech investor has some strong words for Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai. Just last hour, we'll tell you what he had to say and what's got him all riled up next. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, AI has been one of the biggest hot button points, so I will call it one of the biggest debates within mega cap tech right now. Uh, Altimeter's Brad Gerstner just lit into Alphabet for losing its edge to Microsoft and OpenAI in an interview on CNBC's Halftime Report. Let's dig into that in Tech Check with our very own Dear Jabosa today. Uh, Dear Jabosa, I don't know if you caught it, but basically he was saying, you know, a lot of people have said, come on, you know, Google's just going to be just fine and it's going to come back around. And he's like, no, I'm at Microsoft lead counts and it might be growing. Yeah, he was basically saying they need to become more urgent. And that comes amidst reports that Google's, you know, panicking inside that they've lost their AI lead to a Microsoft. Now, at the crux of this conversation as well, Kelly, yes, AI is the hot button issue, but also this idea of a wartime versus peacetime CEO that we haven't seen in some time. The like CEO that is able to cut costs where possible, but also keep that edge in terms of innovation. Mark Zuckerberg, wartime CEO. Satya Nadella, wartime CEO. Sundar Pichai, I think the market is still trying to decide if he can get tough on this. So you mentioned Brad Gerstner of Altimer Capital. Listen to what he said. It was pretty brutal. If I'm the CEO of Google, I have one job. I have one job. Do not let ChatGPT secure a leadership position in search and discovery when it comes to AI. And that's exactly what's happened. 200 million people now treat ChatGPT, a verb, as synonymous with discovery in the age of AI. Kelly, I don't know about you, but I've started using, you know, generative AI a lot more in my day to day. And the first place I go is open AI, not Bard. Actually, I went to both today. Bard gave me the correct answer. Hmm. But that's the problem here is that Google has a much deeper history in AI, more tools, more resources. They've been working on this for so long, but Microsoft has just captured the consumer here with a big, splashy, open um, product launch. Google's going to have a chance on May 10th at their Google I.O. developer conference. But you have to wonder if you're going to see a difference. Sundar Pichai, is he going to be cautious and thoughtful as he has been? Or is he going to come out and make a splash? I think a lot of folks think he needs to make that splash. Yeah, and I took uh, Brad Gersner's point that he doesn't 
doesn't mind Google being second, but just kind of come in in a big splashy way and say, okay, here we are. And he, he hasn't gotten that vibe. And of course, even Pichai doing 60 Minutes, kind of warning about the AI yeah. dangers. So now attention turns to what they uh, what else they might have on the table. I guess, George, the question just also becomes, or the significance becomes, Gerson was, you know, he wrote the open letter to Meta, right, that kind of started the year of efficiency. I mean, yeah. he has people's ear in the Valley. He has people's ear in tech. And mm -hmm. uh, you, you wonder if the response from Google will be as humble as the response from Zuckerberg was. That is a great point, Kelly. And I can tell you, he's not the only person speaking like this, saying that, you know, he's kind of disappointed that Sundar Pichai hasn't done more. I've talked to many founders and investors as well that say that Sundar needs to do a little bit more. That said, it is still extremely, extremely early, and there are some things that Sundar Pichai and Alphabet is doing, like bringing its deep mind into the fold, restructuring so that they can do more. So there's still time, there's still space, and this is going to be a long runway for Alphabet to catch up here. But it is remarkable that we're saying catch up when it right. has thought to have had the lead for so long. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But really, you know, I think many people call it an existential moment for Google. And just going back to the point that I'm using generative AI more, and that's taking my time away from I Google was, I was going to ask you what you were using it for. Was this like stock queries or? <laughs> you know what I asked? I asked if Arm was ever a public company. Oh. OpenAI told me that it was not. It was always private. In fact, it was a public company. Yeah. And SoftBank bought it on the open market. So Bard was correct. So you got to be careful. I mean, the answer from OpenAI was extremely convincing. I asked it several different ways. And I that's know, an all easy question, right? Don't you think it's that's easy? A, that's a softball. That's a lay. Wow. D tell Gerstner, man. He's going to he's going to start buying <laughs> Google shares today as a result of this. Deirdre, thank you very much. Our Deirdre Bosa in Tech Check. Still ahead, cybersecurity stocks had been on a tear in the first quarter with the bug ETF climbing about 13%, but it's a very different story now. It's down 9% so far in Q2. Check out how far some of the worst performers are down from their highs. Zscaler down 58%, Tenable nearly 36%, CyberArk about a quarter on the heels of a revenue miss. We'll talk to the CEO of Tenable about what it'll take to turn things around right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Cybersecurity firm Tenable reporting better than expected earnings last week, but shares are down 20% after they issued weak revenue guidance for both the current quarter and the full year. Tenable cited the banking crisis as one of the reasons for the dampened outlook, saying because of the uncertainty, big money deals have been pushed out, particularly in the financial services and tech sectors, which are traditionally their pockets of strength. Joining me now in an exchange-exclusive interview is Amit Yoran, Tenable CEO. Amit, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to be back. Please give us the granularity here on a day where everyone's kind of, you know, going, hey, another bank failure, everything's great, the economy's fine, the Fed can keep hiking. <laughs> well, uh, we're certainly operating in a, in a tough macro, uh, and nobody's, nobody's uh, impervious to a challenging macro environment. If your customers are impacted, uh, you're going to be impacted. So we did see uh, customer purchases, we did see deals going to close at a protracted rate, especially in the last two weeks of the quarter, which uh, was uh, accented by uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and among the other uh, difficult economic uh, news. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how long do you think is this just a little bit of a lull? I mean, everything you're describing makes a lot of sense and sounds a little bit discomforting if you're a CEO, where you say, OK, we had finance and we had tech and these are two areas which are kind of taking a pause right now. 
Yeah, well, uh, the great news is Temple has a very diverse customer base. We we have customers in uh, over 180 countries around the world uh, in just about every major industry. So we do have uh, exposure to banking and and tech, uh, but that's only a few of of a very diverse customer base. Outside of the uh, financial crisis, where you know there's concerns, there's concerns about interest rates, there's concerns about recessions, there's uh, all sorts of concerns, and and I think CFOs and company uh, companies are just a little bit more cautious in their spend. We had Bill Smead on. He's a value investor earlier this hour, and he said, you know, it took nine years basically after the the dot com bubble for tech to get an evaluation where he was comfortable with it, and that it made sense to him that cloud and software services and everything would be weak right now. Do you think this kind of winter could last that long? Uh, I don't know if the winter is going to last that long. We actually saw very strong demand. We saw actually deals moving through the sales process and through the funnel faster than ever. Leads turning into tech evals, tech wins turning uh, into into procurements, just a little bit of a slowdown at the end of that process. And so, uh, you know, we're assuming that these types of buying behaviors are going to continue. Uh, and that's where we chose to bring down our uh, uh, billings guidance for the remainder of the year. Now, we did deliver record uh uh, cash flow, and we had a massive beat on earnings and, and raised expectations for uh, operating income this year. What are some of the positives you think people are missing? I mean, is it just that we're going to have to let this period of macro concern pass? Well, I think the macro uh, is one thing that's just going to have to have to pass. But I think if you look at the broader opportunity, if you think strategically, our society is digitizing at an incredible rate. You're seeing more computers, more systems, more complexity. And the threats are not slowing down. In fact, uh, they're going to be accelerated by all of the AI that we're seeing that you were actually talking about uh, just recently. It's yeah. going to intensify the threat environment. And so the cyber market and Tenable in particular, we have incredible opportunity in front of us. Challenge is it's a crowded space. It's been overfunded by uh, venture capital. There are probably 10,000 cyber companies out there, a vast majority of them making less than $10 million in, in, in sales. And so there's, there's going to be a shakeout. There's going to be a consolidation in this market. And you'll have to look to industry leaders. You have to look to companies uh, at scale with tens of thousands of customers with nearly a billion dollars or more in in, uh, in revenue and, and see them shift from market-leading products to yeah. real platform providers. No, I've heard the bulls on the cloud say, hey, AI just rescued this whole kind of narrative because a lot of companies can't do AI on their own. They're going to have to go to the cloud and, and procure those services. I'll leave it there, Amit, but it's a great point. I hope you'll rejoin us again soon. Really appreciate it today. Great speaking with you. Amit Yoran is the CEO of Tenable. That does it for the exchange today, but stick around for Power Lunch. The Mattel CEO will tell us the big bets that company is making amid waning toy demand, except for Peppa Pig. Tyler's getting ready. I know he's a big Peppa Pig fan. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 